0: Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown The mysterious, the unexplainable That is why you are here And now for the first time We are bringing to you The full story of what happened On that fateful day We are giving you all the evidence Based only on the secret testimony Of the miserable souls Who survived this terrifying ordeal The incidents, the places my friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterio? Okay,
1: it's Radio Mysterio, so we're back this week. Uh, well, we're back after two weeks ago Since when the station wasn't working uh, I believe it was fixed And uh, our guest uh, last week And this Is um, Peter Robbins uh, Peter, you may know uh, Audience may know as the uh, Mainly as the author of Left at Eastgate About the uh, Bentwaters UFO case Over there in England in 1981 Was it, Peter? 80 1980, yeah Uh, But what you may not know is that he's also um, Lectured and has done a lot of research in a bunch of different areas Including such things as Wilhelm Reich's um, UFO escapades and interactions And we'll talk about that on the show Because a couple people on UFO Mystic actually asked about that, Peter Mm. So we'll get into that too we get the end of it I just like the end of the music (laughs)
2: You know, uh, this has been a particularly busy night for me As we um, get toward the Roswell UFO Conference and Festival I I appear on more and more shows This is the third show I've done tonight And Greg, you have have the best lead-in of any radio show (laughs) in the world I say that completely objective Having been a guest on every radio show in the world so far And, you know, you just win hands down You can't beat Plan 9
1: Right, and see, uh, Peter shows his his um, his cred by knowing that's from Plan Nine.
2: Uh, well, I'm a film maniac as well as a ufologist.
1: Yeah, well, me too. Especially cheap, cheap, bad movies like that. I mean, that Plan Nine well, basically among, opened it, my uh, eyes.
2: Movies, plan Nine from outer space still is in a place all by itself.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. I mean, it it that film opened my eyes to how wonderful. Um, stuff produced by people who have little idea about what they're doing can do.
2: Now, Ed Wood was um, a great American, and for anybody that is not familiar with this extraordinary dear man, uh, do see the Johnny Depp film, Ed Wood. Uh, it's a revelation, and he made the best bad films of anybody.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Who was that guy that did Red Zone Cuba? Oh, well, I can't.
2: there's competition, don't get me wrong, yeah. but he set the bar very high. Yes, he did. Did you ever see Glenn or Glenda?
1: Yes, I Ooh, have it. Oh, that's a bad movie. Glenn or Glenda, originally called I Changed My Sex. In fact, I used to have a copy of it that was called I Changed My Sex before they changed it to Glenn or Glenda. They, the title card actually says I Changed My Sex on it. So That
2: is a collectible, Greg. Hold on to that. that <laughs> they carry you into old age via eBay.
1: Exactly, <laughs> find it's on it's on beta. Did you know that, Peter? It's on Betamax.
2: <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> get out your Betamax.
1: <laughs> I still have a Betamax machine. Left.
2: Gee whiz, how technology plays jokes on us!
1: Well, it's it's I still have the machine and it still works. And oh, I want to get them. You know, well, I want to get them transferred. Free
2: Kodak Carousel slide projectors. I love them, but boy, you can't beat those little. UBS drives to pack information onto rather than a slide tray.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's funny. Stanton Friedman just switched over to uh, PowerPoint about uh, two years ago, finally.
2: I know. Don't you love it? I think he was the last of us, but um, I still have uh, an entire closet filled with slide trays and slides and uh, a dream project for the coming years beginning to transfer quite a few thousand images onto digital
1: yeah, that's what I wanted to do with the video. I, al- I also have a copy of UFO Cover-Up Live.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> also beta?
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: oh, you're cutting edge, baby.
1: <laughs> I, gotta, I have to have a, get a different computer that I can um, feed video into because I want to uh, make uh, video files out of these things and, and save them that way. I think that would be the best way to do it.
2: Yeah, I, I've got stacks of VHS, like most of us, have stuff that you're sentimentally attached to or shows that will never be available uh, on DVD that I'm saving my pennies as well to do some major transferring.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm doing the exact same thing. And I'm, all this stuff, um, I, you know what? Let, let's do an interview instead of uh, shooting the shit about funny stuff because... Uh, Oh yeah, I, we're on the radio. Let's do it. Yeah, I hear I hear that on other shows and after a while it starts to get annoying, so I'm gonna stop it now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so uh what um uh Peter's doing this year as he's done in the last I think two years now, was it? Yeah, is, is 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 yeah. hosting the the uh doing the emceeing duties for the uh Roswell UFO conference. Uh I am Yeah, when does does that start? um,
2: I am so thankful to the city of Roswell. Um, They have been my main employer the last two years, and I've worked as their liaison with the national and international press and broadcast. uh, Obviously, at the last few conferences, and is about building their related tourist standing. And it's been kind of an education for me as we've gone that, other tourism follows, and even if there had never been such a thing as UFOs, this is a beautiful part of America. And Roswell is a particularly warm and interesting community with so many world-class uh, tourist attractions, nature and culture uh, that surround it that I've got gotten caught up in a public-spirited way as well as, as a ufologist.
1: Yeah, you sound like a, you sound like a Roswell booster already.
2: Well, I am. I am. And on this trip, I'm going to spend about two weeks out there and uh stay over after the festival and actually start to see some of these amazing sites so I can speak about them a bit more intelligently as a New Yorker who is 1,800 miles away from Roswell for 11 and a half months a year. Um, But it's been a very interesting series of challenges. I like the people I work with. And as you're aware, Greg, uh, Roswell is unique in that the city government is very much working with the conference and the festival organizers from the mayor's office right on down. And so it's quite an effort and a truly culturally schizophrenic event, Um, as you know, There is the carnival-like side of it that is very child-friendly with lots of attractions. Uh, And then there's the scholarly um, conferences that go on at the same time. And this year they're adding to the Mixed Film Festival, uh, a major rock concert. And um, separate from that, following their great fireworks uh, display on the night of the 3rd, The Temptations will be performing. Motown in
1: Roswell. Can you believe it? It's You know what? It, it's. Once you hang out there and start to talk to people and look around, um, there's a weird little bit of history there, too, that um, you probably know about, about Joe Bauman. No, fill me in. Joe Bauman, um, for the longest time until Barry Bonds did it, held the single-season home run record. Well, he oh, played for the Roswell Rockets.
2: Oh, oh no! And you know, I, any? well, I'll tell you what—I love their jersey that I have seen. And, yeah, I've got uh, one. I wouldn't find a uh, replica of that in my closet. Uh,
1: you know who sells those is Ebbets Field Flannels. Look them oh, up online. Mistakes. Okay, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> I actually have a Roswell Rockets T-shirt on right now, but anyway. No. <laughs>
2: and I actually went to one game at Ebbets Field when I was. Um, Uh, A Mere Child, a very small one, I might
1: add. Yeah, Joe Bauman (laughs) held the home run record until, what, what it was, 1998 or 2000 or whatever when Barry Bonds broke it. And I think he had 72 or so. I can't remember what it was. But uh, I wrote a story about it once uh, called, um, uh, what was it, E.T. Play Ball.
3: Oh,
1: no. (laughs) Because there was an episode of, of the X Files that David Duchovny wrote and directed, wow! Uh, and it concerned an alien who got dropped off in Roswell in 1947, um, transformed himself into a human, uh, and played for a Negro League team from Roswell and hit a, hit a bunch hit hit a bunch of home runs. So it's basically inspired. Oh. Yeah.
2: Wow! Wow. Okay, Mr. Duchovny.
1: I think it's called The Unnatural. The name what? of the episode, unless I'm mistaken.
2: Oh God! And well, as you, uh, as you know, besides having uh, a great conference lineup this year, and this first year that the city is working in partnership with MUFON to produce their official conference, yeah, the uh, the terrific international UFO uh, museum and research center has its own conference as always yeah, and and just to add a little bit of uh, variety to the mix there will be a fundamentalist christian ufo conference taking place all at the same time so wow something for everyone i guess
1: yeah well last year the fundamentalist christian conference was a stealth conference
2: uh... well said yes and it was uh, a very interesting lesson i i certainly learned quite a lot and have Gotten very involved this year in researching fundamentalist Christian UFO beliefs, and will be presenting part of what I've learned in the paper that I'll be giving for the Von uh, International UFO Annual Symposium uh, in early August in Denver this year.
1: Yeah, uh, James Carrion. Uh, I've he's going to be on the show next week. And he told me if, uh, a little bit about what was going on with the conference, yeah, um, and that uh, you would be there. Uh, I think it's interesting that that how did MUFON get involved um, with the with the city conference? Because people don't know that. Like you said, there's three conferences: the UFO Museum does one, the uh, city does one, which they've hooked up with MUFON, and also, uh, like you said, now there's a Christian conference, which is probably is Joe Jordan still going to run that one? I-
2: Yeah, I believe he will be involved. I know he's a speaker. I don't know if he's involved in organizing it, though. Um, But basically, um, after some brainstorming following last year's conference, um, we decided let us invite MUFON and see if they're interested. Uh, Because although when you think of the term UFO, Roswell is often the first location that comes to mind for... Very good reasons. Mufon has never been involved in a UFO conference taking place in Roswell, New Mexico. Right. So we're making a, a little bit of history here this year. And again, the lineup is superb. Um, the topics are fascinating, and we're going to try something this year. That tell me if you're aware of that, that this has ever happened before, Greg. Um, we're doing. Uh, we're signing a number of our first-rate speakers to do entry-level UFO-related talks. We call it UFO 101. So it'll kind of be a mini-conference or series of talks within the greater conference geared to folks who have never been to a UFO conference or talk in their life and would like to begin more or less at the beginning. Um, I'm very excited about it, and I think if it works well... Uh, we will continue to do it so that folks feel maybe a little less intimidated about walking into uh, an event with world-class speakers on a subject that they're really not that familiar
1: with. Oh, man, I should have told you. I have a, I have a, uh, a talk, two talks about that. One is, and this would be great, and I've got to ask you about what's being uh, presented there. One is why I like UFOs st- uh, so much, which is Ooh. just for people that have never heard of it and why is it so interesting and i play you know ufo flying saucer music during it and everything and the other and the other one is called ufos aren't from other planets maybe
2: <laughs> you're a master of language and uh but i will um if if this goes for next year uh i nominate you to uh, join us and uh, please don't change that title at all that is english at its best <laughs> maybe
1: well maybe i'll ask uh, uh jim when he's on next week um. Th- yeah, it's interesting that MUFON would get involved One, you know, because I think it's good publicity for them And they, they always need new members And two, you know, it, within a lot of a lot of people that are in UFO stuff At least people that I know Think that MUFON is kind of behind the times And is not really doing anything new But when yes. I talked to Kerry and he said No, well, we want to change that um, They're doing such things as going through all of their... Uh, case files and uh, putting them on a database and running different scenarios, kind of like Jacques Vallée did in the, in the 1960s, which I thought, was, you know, that amazed me and gave me so much hope. So wow. when MUFON shows up t- and uh, talks about these, and, you know, and Carrion talks about what he wants to do with the organization, I'm really interested to hear. Do you, do you know very much about this or anything you know, different they might be doing? And in
2: fact, I've never met, uh, Jim. We've corresponded back and forth. I will, of course, meet him in about two and a half weeks in New Mexico, and then obviously see him the following uh, month in Denver. But um, I am intrigued, and I am one of those people. Um, I am proud to be a MUFON member now, but in the 30-odd years I've been in the field, uh, the great majority of that time, I've not been a member. I'm really not much of a joiner to start with, and I originally decided not to become a member because I wanted to uh, develop my reputation as a truly independent investigative writer and researcher. And at a certain point, I I think I I accomplished that. So um, I am now back in and very curious to see uh, what kind of initiatives are taken. And if this is something that I uh, want to continue to stay involved in for the duration, I, I hope that will be the case.
1: Yeah, well the impression I got talking to him it was at the um the crash retrieval conference last year in October. Yeah. I talked to him for about 20 minutes and uh, he seemed to be fairly open to different ways of looking at the subject. Up to and including very weird things like the DMT study that Rick Strassman did and some of the valet and Keel stuff that, you know, people uh, I know myself and people I know have been pushing for years. And which has been basically anathema to uh, Mufon because it's basically the ETH organization. Now, if they can get away from that, I'd find that very exciting. And if they're going to sponsor research like that, I, I think that's that's great. And they're you know that's where a breakthrough is going to come through by breaking the mold and trying to.
2: Speaking uh, amposium, I offered James a series of six or so topics, uh, two or three. That would be updates on subjects that I'm known for, and four that were absolutely cold, that are only existing in abstract form, that is commissioned, you know, I'll develop a paper on, religion ethical problems and roadblocks on the official UFO acknowledgement. And I got much more involved in the paper than I thought I would, right. and um, decided to... Uh, well, basically, cross over into uh, some very delicate territory. Uh, so many of our colleagues are so up on the possibility of imminent disclosure or um, enamored by the fact that we have a presidential advisor, a key presidential advisor, John Podesta, right. who is known to be uh, an advocate of um, declassification. Uh, we also have... an intelligent perceptive thoughtful president and I think the mindset is that it's just around the corner and I respectfully disagree for a number of reasons some of which are purely political right but um, from there moving into the world of uh, invoking national security and uh, can UFO openness uh, exist? peacefully, so to say, with national security concerns, and then going into the world of religious attitudes toward UFOs, uh, which is certainly the most delicate. Um, I think we've all, in the research community, gone out of a way for decades to not want to say anything that might seem uh, offensive or in any way um, insulting to anyone else's religion. Relative to this subject, but there really are some extraordinarily important particulars that we need to, do, um, especially if there comes a time when this information is released to the public.
1: Right. Um, do you have any particulars on that?
2: Well, only what I've um, put together in my own research. Um, and as far as religion goes, um, For starters, I I, I approach this paper the same way I approach all my research, which is with as few preconceptions as possible and willingness to absolutely bounce them out of the park if something more credible or substantial uh, reveals itself in the course of research. So for the religious aspects of looking at these subjects – I interviewed a number of religious leaders, um, a number of fundamentalist Christians that I know. Uh, Uh I read books with a religious predisposition toward the subject. Um, A number of them you're familiar with, UFOs in the Bible, um, the hard-to-find-but-wonderful Morris K. Jessup UFOs, and Bible as opposed to um, the Bible and flying saucers, I meant by Reverend Barry Dowling. Yeah. The Spaceships of Ezekiel uh, by Joseph Blumrich, a NASA system analyst. I reread The Twelfth Planet by Zachariah Sitchin, uh, went through the Old Testament and New Testament, reviewed the Koran, um, and asked hard questions and got, I think, honest answers.
1: Well, it's nice that you were able to get cooperation out of people. Well, the thing is, it's it's the way you interview them. Um, You know, I'll interview somebody with a deeply held belief system, but I don't argue with them when I'm interviewing them because I want them to tell me what they think, not what they want me, you know, not reacting against me. And I'm I'm sure you go about it the same way.
2: Well, absolutely. And um, I I have always done my best to keep to maintain cordial relationships with investigators who I might not agree with because I'm always open to have my, my mind changed or my attitude altered. And I gave my word that I would put nothing in a contextual kind of situation where, you know, I'm able to shape or edit the same way that so many major people in the media do to make you look silly. Um, and I think I've won the respect and trust of a number of players in the fundamentalist Christian UFO research community. And, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm relying, uh, on my own, um, skill as an interviewer and as a writer to make good on that in August. I guess we'll find out after I say the last (laughs) word in the talk, but, um, I'm excited about giving this paper and a little anxious because it's not going to make me many friends, I think, but that's not why we're in work. You know, you follow, uh, you ride the horse in the direction it's going, and it takes you where it takes you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So what's your, the talk you're giving is, uh, what's it called again?
2: Um, politics, religion, and human nature. Oh, Practical okay. problems and roadblocks on the path toward official UFO acknowledgement, disclosure, still playing around with the title a bit. Right. But, um, again, I review the tremendous impact of the so-called ridicule factor, which has accompanied this subject since the summer of 1947. And you look at the history of distinguished people in public life, who we know have a uh, a serious attitude toward the subject, but the moment they open their mouth and put it on the public record, um, they become pariahs often or are laughed away, no matter what their position or the respect that they previously had in public life. Uh, A good example, I think, is um, Governor uh, Richardson of New Mexico. Oh, yeah. most of us remember that he was uh, a brief year and a half ago a serious contender for the uh, position of um, nominee of the Democratic Party for president, and he suffered a series of, I won't even call them attacks, but what happened was, um, I guess a year ago in November, um Dennis Kucinich was outed, so to say, on television while doing a live interview, and I, you know, oh, yeah. it may have even been the weekend of the uh, the um, uh, crash retrieval conference because I think I watched it on TV in Nevada. And poor Dennis Kucinich had a UFO sighting, and he had it with his wife, and they at the time they were visiting a friend of theirs in California named Shirley McLean. Yes. Of course, the idiots on television had an absolute field day with this. And for several weeks after, he couldn't appear on a show without being re-asked about flying saucers. And Bill Richardson, uh, who I think would have made a very competent president, uh, a remarkably uh, interesting and skilled individual, um, in 2004, he went on record as saying, It would help everyone if the U.S. government disclosed everything it knows. With full disclosure and our best scientific investigation, we should be able to find out what happened on that fateful day in July of 1947. The American people can handle the truth, no matter how bizarre or mundane, or contrary to what you see in the movies. Okay, now that was Bill Richardson in 2004. In by the autumn of 2007, at a certain point pundits and the talking heads on television got bored of hitting poor Dennis Kucinich with the same question, and they turned on Bill Richardson. Why? He's the governor of New Mexico. That's the reason. And within a matter of days, um, Richardson was saying things like this. Um, dip, 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 dip. I promote Roswell as a tourism issue. But there is no credible evidence. I've never seen one. I doubt their existence. But I admit, I'm the governor of the state, and I push the tourism promotion side. Now, I don't see that as something that I would lose respect for him on. In fact, I see it as the only rational response he could give that was – appropriate, and this is a man fighting it for his political life at this moment. So, um, again, I give a, a hard review of the impact of this, this silliness that's associated with the subject and how it's helped keep any respectable person in power from going on record and staying as John Podesta has, that I think this stuff should be declassified. Now Podesta is in sort of a class by himself; he is an appointed elected uh, official, not an elected one. And I venture to say, you know, ninety-eight percent of all Americans have no idea of this interest.
1: Right. <laughs> what well, I the reason I said what was the paper about again is I was trying to figure out what I was trying to wanted to ask you.
2: Well, the, the again, paper... it, it's about problems on the right, road to right. disclosure,
1: no, I things didn't
2: that have to be dealt with, addressed, thought about, reflected upon, before people go hog wild and push for the release of every damn thing that we have, and in no special order or all at once. Um, it's not going to happen like that if it happens, but... There are some very delicate issues And again um, The one where we have certain conflicts In people's religious beliefs Relative to the subject of UFOs Need to be appreciated And reflected on uh, Before Again One takes a hard stand On the issue
1: Right The The question I had was You You, you in the talk, you outline the things that, that that are problems on the road to disclosure, whatever that may be. But do you, you know, in, in the uh, elucidation of these problems, do you offer any kind of roadmap or solutions or anything like that? I do. I
2: spend literally the entire second half the paper. Uh, after many months of reflection and followed by many months of writing to try to put together Um, a series of scenarios, a uh, series of procedures, uh, some deductive reasoning on what may be happening behind the scenes, Uh, the premise that this subject is far too impacting for any one government, even a, a first world government like ours, to take it upon themselves to do this on their own. And I don't think our leadership would allow that uh... so i lay out what i feel may be discreetly happening behind the scenes right now or could be happening in the not too distant future with governments networking together and setting up certain committees study groups um, you know um, what i'll do in advance of our next show is of course send you a copy of the paper so that you'll have a chance to go through it you know there are enough. There are always different roads to the same place, and mm-hmm. there are different rational approaches to mass declassification and airing of this kind of information. But um, again, it needs to be done with tremendous sensitivity, and the schedule to which you adhere cannot be dictated by, you know, will of the wisp or. Um, you know, popular, um, I don't know, wishes. Uh, I don't think any decision has ever been more important in terms of representative government dealing with the citizens of this planet. And once you begin it, it's going to be very difficult to retract it. So one can argue that we've waited 62 years and enough time has passed and I'm ready. And if you're not too bad, and well, of course I'd like to know what is being kept from us. What curious, open-minded person wouldn't?
1: Well, that, that brings up the basic question. What is being kept from us? What do you think?
2: I think it's a number of things, um, not the least of which may be that part of the reason for the secret keeping is we really haven't learned that much in 62 years, and that's a bit embarrassing. Um, number two, there are things that we may have learned which are reflected by leading investigative uh, uh, pioneers in our research community that have the potential of being so disturbing to um, the human race at large that we cannot predict the results. Um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually take a moment here and do something that, well... On a certain level, I shouldn't, but I'm going to. Oh no! Go right ahead. (laughs) Is read to you um, a section of the book, uh, a section of this paper here that looks at you know some of um, the more volatile possibilities here. Um, If I can come up with it right off the.
1: No, if you if if you Uh, can't right away, I'm going to wait because I'd like to hear it. Okay.
2: Um
1: and I okay, can we can, okay, we can talk about
3: what? other stuff I, if you're still I, looking. Um,
2: look through the manuscript here cuz I'm looking for one particular section on why we really need to um move with care. Um
1: yeah, I I mean cause and the, go ahead. Well, the, the um the you know, my idea which I hope is a little not too far off of yours is what is to be revealed is ignorance, and then um, something which would probably never happen a plea for people who are not connected with the government to try and help them out with what 's going on here because if you 're going to admit that you don 't know what 's going on and there 's something else besides not humans, you know well, you 're going to have to offer a solution, but yeah. there 's no solution to be offered really yet because i don 't think um, people in power know much more than we do, or more importantly what to do with the information or, you know, what it is or what to do about it or how, even how to reveal it to people because it involves a loss of control.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I think it is probably a mix. Um, it's very difficult for me to accept that at the highest levels of our intelligence community and the Pentagon, they don't know as much as Bud Hopkins does um, uh, about abductions. Um all they need to do is study his work. Right, exactly. Uh, their communication, film uh, areas that are, you know, uh, fairly lively as far as um, uh, UFO activity goes. Yeah. I, I assume that they know what we know. But you yeah, know what? Exactly. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, we don't know who's in charge of this information in any given uh, area of government. These are people who are appointed, not elected, and they're folks who we almost never find out their names. Yeah. So, I... you know, we really have um, a problem here in perceiving um, what is covered up. Um, we do know and can say now, absolutely for a fact, that other governments. Um, probably close to ten right now, if not more, have gone to the trouble of declassifying many government documents that they've held on the subject of UFOs. Now, I don't kid myself and think that, you know, they're hitting us with their heaviest information, and yeah. I bet hard money, that their most compelling documents, the ones that have the greatest potential, of giving us core information, are remaining highly classified. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn, as the British are learning now, as uh, thousands of pages of formerly classified UFO documentation are being posted online by the Ministry of Defense. Uh, Denmark has done this, Sweden, Spain, right. Brazil, Brazil yeah. Belgium, France, Um It's quite a pantheon of governments, and we have never released a single document in this manner. Now, at the same time, we really do have to remember that we had a very wonderful law called the Freedom of Information Act. I say had, because it's been tightened up tremendously over the years, especially in this area of study, but beginning with the Carter administration through the Freedom of Information Act, quite a few thousand pages of documents have been released. And you and I, in fact, are two good examples of writers who have drawn on it in writing books. Um, it's remarkable what is out there now on the public record that almost no Americans know about. Um, some of it is very dry and terse. Uh, yeah. Other material, reads like amazing stuff out of Hollywood that you can hardly believe is real, but is absolutely guilt-edged. There's no question about it.
1: Yeah, well, from what you've been saying uh, in the last couple of minutes, we're talking with Peter Robbins, by the way. Somebody has reminded me I should uh, say the guest's name every once in a while. Uh, We're talking with Peter Robbins here on Radio Mysterio. So what that brought up was uh, something I'd uh, written about a little while ago. When I said the government probably doesn't know much more than us, but their database is probably a lot better.
2: <laughs> that may well be the case um I think the another thing that they are not telling us is that since the summer of nineteen forty seven perhaps with the rarest exceptions, we have not developed anything that can counter or neutralize what their technology allows their extraordinary craft to be able to do. And that is not just a problem in real-world terms, should they be less than friendly. Um, Let's remember that our government is made up in great part of macho guys who um, don't take it very kindly when they're completely ineffectual. There's a great deal of ego involved in this subject and I think it's something that we can't ignore um, it's very real
1: oh yeah well that's the part of the uh, not admitting that you don't have the situation completely in control which is uh, probably another one of those roadblocks you're going to talk about in your in your um, lecture
2: yeah it's true it's true there is um, so much that we don't really have a handle on In this area. And and part of the problem is admitting it. And the other thing is, whoever it is, and one would assume in this country it might be the president, probably, who would ultimately go on television at the same time, I would imagine as other world leaders go on to address their citizens. I do see that as a very realistic scenario. But one of the first things that would have to happen is by implication or actuality that person would have to say every leader that we have had since the summer of 1947 uh, up to and including or back to and including harry truman has by implication been an unindicted co-conspirator in keeping this secret and that cuts across Every political line, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Conservative, Liberal, Progressive, Reactionary, it doesn't matter. Uh, So everyone will have to be outed, so to say, to start.
1: Right. Yeah, that's uh, something that uh, Grant Cameron has been looking into for the past 10 or 15 years.
2: And I'm so glad that we're going to have him as a speaker in Roswell, because no one has been more of a specialist uh, on the subject of presidents and UFOs than Grant. And, of course, how wonderfully ironic that he's a Canadian. (laughs) You know, you remember, what was it, two years ago, three years ago, Uh when they would not allow him to cross the border to speak. At the uh, crash retrieval conference?
1: Yeah, they were wondering what had happened to him and they thought he had been arrested or something like yeah. that. No, he that. was detained and sent back. Yes.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that he will be allowed past our border now. Uh, well, I don't think the Obama administration sees him as a potential
1: terrorist. Well, part of the reason was that when he came to the border and they asked him why he was there, he said, I'm giving giving a lecture. And they said, are you being paid for it? And I guess he was getting an honorarium, and that had to deal with doing work, and, you know, there was an employment issue and all that. And I, I, think, and I think he admitted that that was the main reason. So if you're coming yeah. from outside of the country to speak at, in the United States, tell him you're okay. visiting friends.
2: It's not like he's taking a job away from our premier American UFOs <laughs> and the President speaker, because we don't have one near that I know. And I found that passage that I'll read to you and um, again this is from a paper that I'll be reading the first time um, on the 6th or 7th of August in Denver at the Buffon symposium Um, it comes in the context of a part of the paper that deals with national security and it goes like this the state of being secure freedom from danger is it possible that the truth about UFOs and their implications can coexist with a true state of national security. Our system of government grants us the option to set limits on openness just as long as the public has the final say in determining whether the truth shall set them free or ignorance is bliss. It's difficult to know how to resolve this contradiction, but consider the following. It is now some time in the future, and our government is in the process of methodically revealing information about UFOs and the intelligences behind them. The truth about alien abductions has caused a certain amount of shock across the nation and across the world, and in-depth stories on abductions are now regularly featured in magazines, newspapers, television shows, and, of course, on the Internet. The time has now come for the government to tell the people about human-alien hybrids. Even for someone like me a research specialist who spent years working directly with this subject, seminal investigator, Bud Hopkins. This remains extremely disturbing territory. But the public is told, in as reassuring a manner as possible, that, among other things, these half-human, half-other beings are the result of an ongoing alien effort involving human females to create a third species. Then the public learns that some hybrids are so human-looking in appearance, they're able to pass among us without being noticed. Aliens among us? Aliens who look like people, possibly living in the apartment across the hall or a house around the corner? Not on my planet. How long do you think it will be before the nightly news reports on a person now in police custody who took a shot? someone with wispy blonde hair, uh that they were sure was staring at them across the restaurant, or wing that geeky guy who speaks in a monotone and is known to have an interest in UFOs, any positive benefits of declassification and release would have been far outweighed by the negative impact on their security, national or otherwise. End passage.
1: The first thing that comes up excellent yeah. uh, writing by the way. And <laughs> thinking. You. The first thing that comes up to me is I know you worked with Bud Hopkins for quite a while and still know him. Many years. Um, What are you convinced of? What are you convinced of in his research?
2: Oh, um, well, I I should say um, for your audience, when I say work with, I met Bud literally um, months into his involvement in maybe a year, six months into his involvement in the field in 1976. Uh So our relationship predates even by several years, the publication of his first book. I spent, I think, about 12 years as his assistant, and, of course, continue as a close colleague whenever possible, and he's still a dear friend and a crucial mentor to me, and, a great good fortune I had in coming up through the ranks, but this is based on having met with hundreds of people who seem to have gone through this from every walk of life, every socioeconomic background, been privy in a number of cases to extraordinarily anomalous medical records, in a handful of cases uh, met or spent time with people that they were in therapy with. Seen the implants, seen the MRIs, spoken to multiple witnesses who observed or were involved, uh, seen the scars, know the family history. I am convinced that there is this situation. Lines are, if it is happening to you, happen to one or possibly both of your parents. And that a third species, not human, not them, and we're always hard pressed on words. I am not comfortable with the word alien. It makes me think of people sneaking across our borders or funny cartoon characters. I other intelligences that there is a program to create beings that are part us, part them. Why? I'll take an educated guess. Um They are looking to revitalize their race or they can make accurate scientific projections about the rate that we are toxifying this wonderful little planet we've been given and know that x amount of time in the future your standard issue human being is going to be having some accelerated problems surviving and perhaps taking the best of both of us i don't know But it is going on, and at a certain point, we may all find out en masse. Um, Again, I don't know, and I tend to be cautious around people who tell me what exactly is going on because they do know. After all, I've only been in this for 33 years, and um, what do I know? Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm being lighthearted here and bantering a bit, but this is a bloody serious subject, and something very real is going on in this parameter. I remember once Dr. David Jacobs, who certainly is is highly regarded in this field even if you you're not pleased with the results that his research has borne gave me a copy of a Xerox page from a journal that he had at the turn of the century it was a journal that is in the family of an abductee and it was an attempt in in, in language that you'd feel more comfortable with more than 100 years ago than right now of an individual entering into their own personal journal, I'm sure with no thought of publication, trying to write down what I could only deduce was an alien abduction experience. Um, it's not something that started yesterday. Uh, when it will stop, if it will stop, I don't know. Uh, what is really behind it, I can only guess at. I hope for the best. I expect something less, but it is real. Now, you and I know that there are research specialists that focus in on and give a lot of credence to military-sponsored abductions that I understand are done in part to mimic the alien abduction experience for purposes once again we can make educated guesses about i i don't deny this is a possibility It's simply never been a research area that i felt compelled to become involved in um, again i consider myself a humanist and whatever is going on is going on it's fascinating it's compelling it's interesting it's creepy it's weird it's sensational but we can still only make guesses about it. However, the impact on real-life human beings, we can learn a lot more about. And for me, I, I, I'm, I'm more concerned with the people that go through this and have their lives quite often destabilized uh, emotionally and otherwise because of what is going on. And in some cases, it does tremendous damage in other cases it gives individuals a chance to persevere and surmount tremendous obstacles and not be run by it but you know follow their dreams and go after what they would have gone after anyway if this was not a part of their life
1: you from what you said you sound convinced that there is something going on. Now, I agree with you. There is definitely something going on. Um, I also wonder about uh, critics that say that these things are, you know, mental aberrations or things that people make up or something like that, which I don't think. I think there's something external. However, when I hear things, uh, when I read Bud Hopkins' books and David Jacobs and John Mack, I get the feeling that they have an idea of what's going on, and then they've, they've kind of used their research to force the issue into a, a scenario that seems to make sense to them, at least at the beginning, and then just looked at the information that supported that. Um, obviously, you're convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that at least some of what um, your friend Bud has been um, researching is actually happening. Um, oh,
2: I'm absolutely convinced. As much as I'm convinced that I'm standing here in this room, I, I think I've talked to you about this, Greg. And it's yeah, I just wanted to talk about I it. Out, uh, about a lot um, in public forums like this. But it's certainly no secret. I've written about it. I've talked about it, even going back 30 years. It's mm-hmm. been in print. Um, that the the reason the reason that i got involved in this field and it happened overnight i i had a dream i was following it i had some that i wanted to do and was doing Um i was a painter and a photographer and that was my life and that was all i really wanted to do but this happened to one of my sisters and if you don't think that changes you overnight or gives you impetus to investigate it on a much more profound level than, you know, being an intellectual dilettante or something or, um, you know, uh, approaching purely for intellectual curiosity. um, Think again. Um, So I, I, I don't, you know, belief doesn't really enter into it as much at this point for me as having seen what I would consider so much court-level evidence, if such things were adjudicated in courts of law, physical evidence, medical evidence, multiple witness testimony, um, and again, variations on every other kind of proof that one could put forward. Um, Granted that there are people in this field who... I don't know. Um, I I think their real compulsion is to have an interesting and maybe somewhat off-the-beaten-path career. Uh, They are completely or in great part ego-driven. We all go through periods of time in our lives, especially when we're younger, where we want to create a history for ourselves where we want public acknowledgement for something that we feel that we're good at or skilled in, Um, again, I, I don't say it as a figure of speech. I do and have always followed the evidence in any investigation I've done, wherever it goes, without a secret agenda. And a lot of people quietly come to a point A lot of people in our field, Mm -hmm. where they quote unquote know or feel they know or are convinced that this is the way it is, and will then pose as being more objective. And I think you know, without um, uh, in any way, you know, you you and I um, for years have have had a great time going at this subject from different directions and. God knows we do approach it from, from different ways. and
3: well, sort uh, of. We're
2: both explorers, so to say, in an area where, um, you know, you're still kind of on your own. But I, I should say right here that, again, working so closely with Bud for so many years, I have not seen him kind of try to shape or... A uh, force a fact to fit a thesis. Um, I remember once after uh, a particularly in-your-face confrontation that he had had with Phil Klass, sitting around with him, and he's a great thinker with a really fine mind, just saying, you know, it occurred to me after this that they're the true believers. They know this is not happening. They know it because it can't be. Therefore, it isn't. Therefore, these poor, deluded individuals that feel that they've been through this experience are either mental, weak-minded, and led by Bengali-like people like me (laughs) who have this weird desire to convince people that they've been abducted by aliens. And, or they're tricksters, or they want to be on the Oprah show, or, or, or. They are all belief... And no openness. We are all openness and, you know, doing our best to put together the information to us. And at this point, there's a fairly substantial bit. This Mm -hmm. area of research has now been going on for over 30 years. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that there aren't situations where people may maintain that this has happened to them and they do have a mental aberration, and it hasn't happened to them. Uh, Also, some years ago, the uh, big deal was, well, it's sleep paralysis, and this is a legitimate medical condition where you may find yourself waking up in the middle of the night and you're unable to move your limbs for whatever the reason is. But sleep paralysis in no way accounts for... You know, six people seeing you floated out of your window at two in the morning, or um, ending up with a, uh, a totally cauterized tiny ice cream scoop kind of wound, or a foreign device inserted subcutaneously, you know, a quarter of an inch under your skin, um, or, or, or. Yeah. Uh, they're really grasping at straws because, of course,. If the whole UFO phenomena is true, if the abduction phenomena is true, and we're not talking about all UFOs or all abductions, to paraphrase our colleague Stanton Friedman, the question is not, are UFOs extraterrestrial craft? The question is, has one of them ever been? And I feel, whether it's extraterrestrial, interdimensional, it's a moot point for me. It's from otherwhere.
3: Right.
2: And nothing that we have ever rationally tried to put together to explain it, explains
1: it. Yeah, you know what, Peter? I agree with you on that completely. Um, What comes out from what you're saying, we're talking with Peter Robbins, by the way, uh, what I get from this and what I get from through doing my book, which has nothing to do with uh, UFO weirdness but more to do with, uh, you know, government stuff, is that are we
2: talking about? Project beta?
1: Yeah, what I get okay. from this is that you will have. This is such a weird subject that yeah. you're going to have to immerse yourself <laughs> in the information for quite a long period of time, probably longer than you want to. Yes. To be beco- to come to a, some sort of a not a belief system, but your own answers, conclusions, whatever you want to call them um and the feeling appreciation of, of the depth exactly. of exactly so it's almost impossible when you're in a public forum to convince somebody that hasn't gone through the same thing you have it's it's a very difficult thing now i don't right, totally you're agree on the head yeah. i think
2: that you have absolutely nailed it there is no way to get from here to there in an hour and fifteen minutes, right. um, I can do a pretty good survey piece for a lay audience on these are authentic UFO photographs. Why do I say they're authentic? Because the analysis, whatever it is, it's not a hubcap. It's sixty feet across and a hundred yards away. Um, these are background traces of uh, sand that was turned to glass. Yeah. These are firsthand credible leading witnesses. These are leading government figures. You can only lead the horse to water, but no matter how much it drinks, it's not going to have the library that we have or the years of experience to get to the point where we can speak not just with conviction, but know, laughingly, as well as we can know the unknowable, that what we're talking about is an authentic phenomena, And... I, I find it actually somewhat condescending when people find out what I do in maybe a neutral social situation at a party or something and say, so, tell me about UFOs. Convince me they're real. Yeah, oh, You know, ahead. my first reaction is to make a rude remark and ask them to leave me alone. Uh, my second is try to be gracious and maybe offer a cursory, you know, uh, discussion about it. But I'm a big one on loaning books. And if somebody is willing to borrow a book and read it and then sit down with me and then maybe borrow another book or a DVD of a particularly compelling lecture, I am engaged. And that is the basis for a friendship, for an intellectual parrying partner, for somebody that is at least open to trying to prolong own material. I'm fine with me.
1: Let's go at it. Right. It's uh, because the the reason I ask these questions, and as I, as you know, because you know me, it's not because I don't. I think that you're full of crap, or Bud Hopkins is full of crap, or David Jacobs, or whoever. Um, the point is that I want them to be able to convince me mm-hmm. that that the experience they've gone through and they're done. Would convince you know a, a greater amount of people. But probably more importantly, just me. I mean, why do I do the show? Why did I do the magazine? Why do you do what you do? Because you're looking for your own answers. Yes. You know, and if somebody comes in midstream and says, "Well, you're full of crap," it's like, "Well, do you have ten hours for you to for me to tell you how I came to this conclusion?" Which is why I will say that I will say the things I said about Bud and a few other people. Because I want them to stick up for themselves and convince me that what they're doing is worthy of attention of, you know, maybe most importantly me, but anybody else in in the public forum. And that's that's the hurdle that a lot of people face.
2: One of the great things I think about being a writer is when you come to this point in a discussion or a confrontation, you have the amazing mm, option of saying... Why don't you read such and such that I wrote? It took me X amount of time. And I think if you read it, you will appreciate the points that I can't make sitting here on a couch while you're sitting there with a glass of wine and a smug look on your face. If you, for example, were to sit down and read or reread Missing Time, Intruders, Witnessed, and Sight On Scene. Bud's Four Books, and by the way, he will have an autobiography out next month, which I'm very excited about. Um, I think they make a compelling case. If you're going to choose one book, I think about the abduction phenomena the way that, at least I think, it is happening, and it's not exclusive. There may be other avenues. I would read or reread Witnessed, the true story of the Brooklyn Bridge UFO abductions. Um, I think it's a powerhouse. I also think the amount of absolute proof, um, or if not proof, solid evidences, and the multiple, multiple people that came forward from all over lower Manhattan who, for no payback, No television show, no money, no book. Simply said, I saw that woman floated out of that 12-story window and up into that huge glowing thing that was hovering over her building. And then it took off. Uh, Linda, the subject of the book, has become a very good friend of mine over the years. And um, I worked full-time as the research assistant on that book for four and a half years. I mean, I was doing some other things, but that was a main thread in my life, and I saw it from inception to completion. Um, If you were talking with somebody about, you know, they're saying, oh, I don't believe that you know, people that I would respect in public life would take this seriously if they did, maybe I'd think differently about it. I'd loan them my backup copy of Timothy Good's Above Top Secret. Yeah. If they're pragmatic historian types and they want to see real data from government documents, definitely loan them my backup copy of UFOs in the National Security State by Rich Dolan, and so on and so on, but try to cater to what you feel they're looking for. Yeah. I um, have loaned out lots of copies and given out lots of copies of Left at Eastgate for people who actually still maintain based on nothing other than what they feel, believe, or think, or maybe what they saw on some little feature on television, that these highly trained American Air Force personnel um, saw the planet Venus or a lighthouse or a meteorite storm and misinterpreted it as a UFO that had landed in the field in front of them. That's insulting.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Hey, Peter, do you want to take a break or do you want to keep going?
2: Um, let's take 5 and come on back in 5 minutes.
1: Okay, cuz I've got it I got a funny song I just downloaded the other day called the the Lunar Fluter. <laughs> I
2: think we should begin our 5 minutes with that song.
1: Okay. Uh this is Misterioso working with Peter Robin, the um, probably best known as the author of Left at Eastgate, um about a uh UFO landing at uh Air Force base in England in the early 1980s, 1980 to be to be exact, and also the MC and uh, moderator for this year's uh, Rodswell UFO conference, which is coming up in a couple of weeks here. So we'll be back in uh, five minutes. A little actually less. Yeah, a little less than five minutes. The the song is two minutes thirty. Maybe we'll play two songs. Okay. Okay, Peter. Uh, so come on, come on back, and we'll uh, have another hour here with Peter Robbins. Whoops! That was the wrong one. It was "Yellow Submarine" on a banjo. Here we go. Wow! It doesn't. No. I guess you're gonna have to do "Yellow Submarine" on a banjo then.
4: Bad, but now I know, cause a little voice told me in my dreams last night. You Why, that's no reason for me to go, cause there's an awful lot of sights around here, you know. i Katie. Well, again clear. I ain't standing here if the man in the moon ain't a lady. Yeah, the man in the moon ain't a lady. We went for a stroll through the crater gardens, and boy was that a sight. Then she said, the night. <laughs> then she took me to the dark, dark side no one has ever seen. Uh, now I know why they want to go, I see just what they mean Yeah, we bought the hero, we bought the show, yeah, i, I done it all Yeah, that little moon girl sure to go, oh, we really had a bar I met the cutest little thing, and her name was Katie. Well, they're getting it clear, I ain't standing here,
0: it's the man in the moon
4: That
1: Creature from Outer Space. we that good It's Creature from Outer Space by, um, who did that? It was a Sunny Day. Before that, we had The Man in the Moon as a Lady by Floyd Robinson. And before that, a, uh, I cut it off, but it's uh, a banjo version of Yellow Submarine, uh, which you can't even recognize as a banjo version of Yellow Submarine unless you know that's what it is. And then when you recognize it, you start singing along. We all live in it. It's perfect. Oh, God. <laughs> We're, um, this is uh, Ready Mysterioso, as if you didn't know already, and um, with bad... Uh, faders here there we go and our guest is Peter Robbins uh, Peter is back with us on another phone
2: I am uh, my other one ran out of juice and just to go back to the previous segment although yeah. um, uh, I'm, I'm flattered to think that anybody would think that I wrote Left at East Gate by myself
1: okay, co-author, uh, I'm co-author. I'm sorry. co-author
2: along with Larry Warren of course who was the witness Uh, I merely did my best to um, give the story some credence and do the research to back up his account and those of other men involved.
1: You know what? I've got a question for you. There's some weird interactions with with government-type people in there where you went and met with people in D.C. and talked to them, and they didn't want to give their names and all that. What is your experience with those kind of people, and what do you get out of them when most people say that they, they by all accounts, should just be lying to you the whole time? I maintain that they do not. What do you think?
2: Um, I am not one of those people who has met with numerous shady-led government Military intelligence operatives.
3: Okay, a few. Them. Uh,
2: I have met with quite a few who I have vetted as fully as I can, and my best understanding is they were who they purported to be, uh, and did my best to ask straightforward questions and took the responses sometimes, uh, you know, with a, a, a dose of skepticism because you can never be really sure in such an instance if somebody is telling you the absolute truth, a confabulation, a mixture of truth and fiction, uh, or fiction to produce in you results that they might want to elicit. But let me give you an example of something that happened to me in the course of working on the book that for me uh, was very chilling and very sobering, and made me realize that although I perceived myself in a, a in a very small part of the picture of one individual self funded doing what I could to try to get to some of the truth about this extraordinary series of events that occurred in England in December of nineteen eighty Larry Warren invited me to work on this book with him after we met um, in Washington, D.C. at the 40th anniversary of Roswell-Mufon Conference in 1987. And we began work literally the next week uh, in New York City at my home. Uh, Early on, and this would have been later in 1987, more than 20 years ago now, he suggested that I contact a writer who lived very close to the events in question in Suffolk, England. Her name is Brenda Butler. Um, Brenda is not a huge name in UFO studies, but she's certainly well-known in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. She was one of three people who wrote the very first book on the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents. It's called Sky Crash, and it was published in 1984 in England. It was written by her and um, a woman named Dot Street and the better-known UFO paranormal writer in the U.K., Jenny Randall. Um, Larry met with her, spent time with her. I didn't agree with um, many of of the things that they had put forward in the book, but felt it would be a valuable contact for me and somebody I could meet with when we went over to England on our first trip. So this is pretty much just pre-Internet. And I wrote what they used to call a letter and put it in an envelope. <laughs> I wrote it on my IBM's electric typewriter to um, uh, Brenda, introduced myself, told her, told her I was working on this book with Mary, would be over in a few months, and would love to meet with her. And she wrote me back, acknowledging the letter with another letter and saying that um, that would certainly be fine and to give her a call when I was there. Now, as you know from reading left at East Gate, something very shattering happened on our very first night on location. Right. We had a multiple UFO incident, which shook me to my core. I've had people approach me over the years and say, how cool, how fortuitous, what a great thing to happen for you. And I say, think again. I'm with a truly controversial witness. We're five or six miles from the site of the world-famous incident that happened to him eight years before. It's our very first night of our very first trip. Who is going to believe this? Anyway, the week accelerated, and I never did contact Brenda. And when I got back to the States, I wrote her and apologized for not calling and told her... Basically, I had been kind of overwhelmed that week and hoped that I could meet her in the future, and I never heard back from her. Now, I ascribe that to one of several things. Either maybe I heard her things and she didn't want to write back because I didn't uh, make good on my promise. Maybe she um, wrote me back and her letter got lost in the mail. Or, 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 I didn't give it too much thought and went on writing the book. We now jump ahead. Nine years later, the book is out. It's in print. It's a bestseller all over the U.K. Larry and I are on a 15-city speaking tour of the United Kingdom. It was so gratifying after so many years of thankless work that basically bankrupted us. both. I can't begin to tell you. (laughs) <laughs> and at one point, we were doing a book sign at a bookstore in the of Woodbridge in Suffolk, East Anglia. Mm-hmm. Woodbridge is the closest town, not a village, to the site of the crowd there and In an hour and a half, we sold and signed about ninety copies of our book that 's a lot of books, yeah, and it was really exciting um you know you 've seen people you 've done it too, you sit at a table people keep approaching you in the line if things are going well and they give you the book and you ask whether they'd like it signed or inscribed and if so to who Mm -hmm. and at a certain point i look up and the next person in line is a woman who i notice is different than everyone else for two reasons she doesn't have a book and she doesn't look happy at all Uh and i look at her she looks at me and she says do you know who i am and i say no she says, I'm Brenda Butler, and I have a bone to pick with you, quote-unquote. Yeah. Well, I immediately pointed to Larry, and Larry uh, took her aside, and they chatted for a few minutes. And he said, I hope you don't mind. I've invited her to join us for lunch afterwards. I said, no, fine. Yeah, why not? Uh, we were a bookstore owner to whom we uh, were heroes of the day, and we went out to a little pub and had a nice English lunch. I don't know if you've ever been to lunch with three people and one of them isn't talking to you. (laughs) Um, It was awkward. But we went through the entire lunch without her even acknowledging my presence. And over coffee, she finally to me, And she said, I wasn't kidding. I I really have something we need to review here. And uh, frankly, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not happy about it. I said, what is it? She said, right. You wrote me in 1987 that you were coming over, and um, you know, the week came, uh, the week of the, the 19th of February, and you called me and introduced yourself and suggested that we get together for lunch at the Cherry Tree Pub, which is up the road from where I was staying at a bed and breakfast with Larry. And I went, and you never showed up, and you never even had the courtesy. To apologize or reschedule a call. So when I received your letter, when I got back, when you got back to the States, I thought, heck with you, and I never responded. Now I'm looking at her the whole time that she's talking, and it's obvious she is telling the truth as best she knows it. The hairs on my neck are going up, and she finishes, and I say something to the effect of, Brenda, when you get to know me better, and I hope you will, you'll know that I am not the kind of person that would do that. That's not the way I was brought up. Brenda, I never called you. It was one of the few times in my life where I was looking at somebody's face as all the color drained from it. And she basically just said, oh, my God, I believe you. And very quickly, we were able to put together what happened. When I, as somebody who was not terribly well-known in the field of UFO studies, and a few months, into a book that the odds should never have been completed and certainly not to the great degree that it was wrote a letter to this woman in England at some point along the way that letter was flagged it was opened without any sign that had been opened it was read and resealed once I entered the country someone with an American accent called Brenda Butler, claiming to be me, fully aware of the information in that letter, and scheduled an appointment, and for the cost of about a ten-pence phone call, drove a wedge between one of the leading investigators on this subject in the United Kingdom and the person who would go on to become the leading American investigator. And I say that without any ego, I'm just stupid enough to have spent a decade of my life on this subject and gotten completely obsessed with it, that's where my credentials come from (laughs) that was chill to me, and that is very low level compared to, I'm sure accounts that other people give of uh, intercepted communications or contact with higher ups and things, my activities, my uh movements in the united kingdom were monitored for years my telephone calls were monitored in this country for several years my mail was irregularly opened and resealed in a very obvious way was this to upset me, destabilize me, upset me, frighten me? I think so but at a certain point you know we reach moments in our lives where you say you know the hell with this I can live in fear or galvanized myself, and what really made me an activist in this and made me go through my fear was the anger that I felt, and I still feel, about the way these men were treated by our government and the way that they were uh, dealt with after the fact. I spent two hours on the phone earlier this week with John Burroughs, uh, who is another one of major ranking witnesses, uh, first, second, and third night, where Larry was the third. And his life also has never been the same, nor has Jim Penniston's, nor, I venture, has Charles Hall's, nor many of the other individuals that were involved in these events. So, again, it's sort of not addressing your question, but... Yeah, it is. Um, you know, um... I'm smart enough to know that at times when I have sat down with somebody who alleges that they have a background in intelligence or uh, a very high-level military clearance, whether they're still active or retired, you know, um, I know that I can't ever know 100 percent, well, with rare exceptions, I think, but that's just, you know, my, my subjective impression. Um, that what I'm getting is absolutely authentic. It's one of the reasons why I'm glad that another one of my mentors, as I came up through the ranks, was a tough, no-nonsense New York City police detective who also happened to be a crack UFO investigator. And, in fact, the uh, first edition of Left at Escape, it's dedicated to two people. One is Larry's mom for all the right reasons, and the other is Detective Sergeant Pete Mazzola of the New York City Police Department, who died much too young, right at the point where Larry and I were signing on together to work on this book. The reason I bring up Pete is because he taught me to investigate the subject of UFOs in particular cases in an almost identical way that law enforcement personnel investigate crimes.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm
2: very plotting. I'm very real world. Uh, Martians don't channel messages to me. Um, I try to triangulate. I try to get at least three sources for anything that I'm going to put into print. And if I can't, those two sources better be damn good. Um, you know, we can only do the best we can. And I'm not saying that some farther out methods of securing information are bogus it's just not the way i work and probably never will be
1: right exactly you, you know it's it's funny that you bring up the subject of the paranoia and all that and giving into it and well not really giving into it but just finally you did it out of a sense of anger um yes i had i've only had two male problems of of uh no, not what everybody's thinking. U.S. Postal Service problems. <laughs> and well,
2: they're uh, a pretty covert agency. It's what? Uh, they're a very covert agency. Watch out for them.
1: Yeah, one of them was uh, a bunch of my letters from Carla Turner were opened. Oh, my. And a bunch of my letters from Peter Jordan. Do you remember him?
2: No, but Carla was a good friend, and I miss
1: her. Yes, I do, too. Um, after I talked to her on the phone and said, what's going on with the mail? Every, everything you send to me is opened," And it wasn't one of these, like, secret open. It's ripped open or cut open. And then the, the post office puts a piece of plastic around it and says, oh, well, we're sorry, it got, it got destroyed in the mail. No, it got open. And then after I, talked well, I, to her, after I talked to her about it, it stopped. Yeah.
2: The same thing happened to very close friends in Suffolk, who were very deeply involved in this case that I was corresponding with, and quite ferociously at one point, their mail was opened on more than one occasion, and then again put into a plastic envelope, sorry for accidentally opening your mail, you know, here is the Royal Postal Service. It's also happened to Larry over the years as well. and. I subscribe to deductive reasoning. I think it's been a great asset to me in my work for decades. Um, this is work, uh, a methodology rooted in um, the writings of Arthur Conan Doyle, the wonderful creator of Sherlock Holmes, who I became enamored with when I was still an adolescent. And I loved that way that Holmes would investigate, namely that you begin not with the most sensational, far-out possibility. You begin with the most mundane premise.
1: And work yourself up.
2: Examine it from every possible um, angle. If it doesn't pan out, you go on to the next least likely. And if what you end up with is the most highly unlikely one as the most credible, then that may well be it. So one quick example. Um in February of 1988, um, um yeah, eighty eight, Larry and I are in England, um the first trip research trip, and we walk out to Capel Green, which is a farmers field, uh about half a dozen miles from AF Bedwaters where Larry's event took place. Now I know this place in my head already. Larry's been going on about it for months. I've read about it, I've seen it on the survey maps, I have a sense of it. And that moment where we kind of clear the forest and I'm looking out into the field for the first time, I know where I am. Now I tape recording this while well it's happening, Greg, and at that moment Larry's arm shoots out reflexively. He hasn't been back in year in eight years. And he points out into the field and he said it's sat right there. And then we're both quiet. And then he says, after a pause, but of course That's just a coincidence that that area that I'm pointing out is vaguely circular and discolored. Now, my first thought was not, oh, my God, a trace case. Look at that. You can see where it landed. My first thought was, that's interesting. Maybe it's the play of light at this time in the afternoon. The field is plowed. Maybe lightning struck there a year ago. Maybe six months ago a ton of nitrate fertilizer was dumped there, and it wasn't graded out completely. And ultimately, I took samples from the center of the area, from the edge. Ultimately, we now know, after extensive testing, and I returned uh, to that site more than a year later with laboratory court containers and left England with about 20 pounds of soil in my very large suitcase, (laughs) appropriately sealed and labeled that that soil had been through the ringer. The pH was blown, the sand in the soil was glass, that um, seed germination tests, comparing it to control samples from out in the field, that in the affected area, the plant took longer to mature and were mutants. Something happened there. And the way that I learned it was not jumping to a conclusion, but examining all of the more mundane aspects before going on to the truly wild, which is the one that proved to be true.
1: Yeah. Well, it shows, um, you know, the people that say, well, if people, you know, people that are into UFOs are always looking for evidence of aliens. No, they're looking for, a lot of them are looking for evidence of something that just doesn't fit. And then, you know, possibly building upon that. You know, yeah. a lot of UFO researcher people or people that are interested in it, it's it's kind of like um, you know when a cop, you ask a cop how many times did you have to draw your revolver in twenty years, and they say twice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a UFO researcher, how many times have you happened onto something that actually seemed that didn't have a mundane explanation in you know twenty years, and they'll, they might say the same thing, maybe twice, maybe once. You touch,
2: you're touching on a very important point here in that occasionally I become aware of colleagues who are so involved, are so enthused, are so already convinced of the rightness of their premise, because it's probably the way it is, that they tend to jump the gun and function more like believers than like skeptics in vetting evidence. Um, I've heard people substitute evidence, and a lot of them are people you know, for in, in enthusiasm and kind of being a cheerleader um, and going on about how important this is without backing it up with anything that a lowly pragmatist like me can wrap my brain around and say, oh, okay, even though you, know, you can't provide me with much for obvious reasons, You provided me with something and also related it to something else. You've at least hung it on an armature, so to say. And you may be right, as opposed to, well, I just found this discoloration in the soil. It's obviously the spot where a flying saucer landed. You can't know that if you didn't see it happen and you haven't been able to establish in some way scientifically even though it may be true and you would long to be the person to bring the facts to bear on the situation.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know what? I promised before we got... Oh, well, if we can get to two or three other subjects because we've got 20 yeah. minutes. Um, Let's do it. And I'll stop talking about my paranoia because you're the guest. And <laughs> <laughs> All right, my, the, Well, you know what? The way I got over the paranoia was to decide just to stop it. <laughs> I got tired of it. So, anyway.
2: I, I think that, um, you know, that works. Um, as in the arts, boredom is your friend. makes you move on to more productive areas.
1: Yeah, maybe not boredom, but just more like, you know what? I'm tired of feeling paranoid all the time. Why don't I just ignore it unless somebody's saying, you stop this or you die? You know, short of that, what do, what do I have to worry about? You yeah, then uh, my yeah. friend, go ahead. So,
2: what do you want to go on
1: to next? Oh, my friend uh, Adam Go Rightly, who you may know of. Uh, yeah, yeah, because he was at Roswell a couple years uh, last year. Um yeah. he's he wants to uh, hear more about what happened to your sister, who was a uh, singer in a punk band, and her her uh, her uh, punk band name was Helen Wheels. I uh,
2: was, and Helen was um, not just a singer in a punk band. Ellen was really one of the real pioneers of the entire movement in New York. And um, because of her, especially in the early days, I was a regular at CBGBs and with audiences of under 200 people, regularly saw acts like Patti Smith and the Talking Heads and the Dead Kennedys. And Blondie and, 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 and... Ellen, the Ramones. And the and the Romantics. And the uh, s the sick F-words.
1: You can um, say it on this show. It's fine. I,
2: I watched Ramones a number of times. It was an amazing period of time in pop music. And Helen was probably the best of the best that never made really big in terms of a music contract. But um, she was a singer-songwriter and a poet and very talented in many, many other respects who um was a gold and platinum uh record winner for songs that she wrote for the Blue Oyster Cult that helped propel her into uh, a higher visibility as well. And a number of the guys in the culture are still good friends of mine. But she had experiences from the time that she was young and only first started talking about them when she was in her 20s. Um, And my life changed overnight with this. I I do remember, for example, when she was about 12 years old, waking up in the middle of the night with a flurry of activity uh, in the house. My parents were up. The light was on in the hallway, and I went out into the hallway kind of rubbing my eyes. And uh, the light was on in my sister's room, and my mom was sitting with her, and Helen was just sitting there looking a little pale but with some blood on her face, and her pillowcase was just, it seemed soaked in blood to me. It was very upsetting. Mm-hmm. And that night, they took her right to uh, an emergency ear, nose, and throat guy who asked her if she had stuck a pencil way, 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 way up her nose and made a little hole there. Helen had asthma and would have sneezing fits times, and that night sneezed out something about the size of a BB that almost was paralyzed as though it had been in there for an awfully long time. And this is a fairly common phenomena among lifelong abductees. Of course, nothing at the time and not for many years later uh, allowed me to begin to put pieces together, nor her, but she explored this, um, in a number of ways with a number of people, including uh early on. Uh, also did regressive hypnosis with my detective police truck and friend who trained to do an investigative hypnosis, criminal investigations, but was one of the very first people also doing it relative to UFOs. And faced what had happened to her, I thought, with great courage. And... Um, was really, I think, a very good role model for a number of other women that she was in Bud's support group with at the time and at a certain point felt she had learned everything she could about what had happened to her, that it well might happen again, and that she was damned if it was going to run her life and went back to following her dreams of being a, uh, a very fine musician and songwriter and an extraordinarily decent and intelligent and sensitive woman. And uh, for anybody interested in uh, learning more about my sister, if you simply Google the name Helen Wheels, which is her performing name and her band name, you'll get thousands of hits on the Internet. You can go to the memorial website that a friend of ours still runs called HelenWheels.com, and her uh, CDs are available out there in the world. There are three of them, well, two, and then a third one, which is a tribute CD, by
1: wonderful musicians who knew and worked with her over the years. Okay, I hope that answers uh, Adam's question. What I wanted to ask, and uh, what I promised before we came back, and also one of the uh, uh, UFO Mystic readers had asked, is if you could uh, discuss your talk about Wilhelm Reich and about Oregon energy and all that, because a lot of people, I, I mean, I've been interested in it for years, Probably yeah. uh, prodded into it by uh, uh, Ken Thomas. However, you oh came, my. yeah, you came to it <laughs> in a different way. And the, actually, one of the first times I saw you speak, you were speaking about Bentwaters, and you said, "I didn't want to mention this. I didn't want to have anything to do with it." And it just was sitting there. I thought I saw you said what I thought were basically Wilhelm Reich technology, namely cloudbusters, sitting on the flight line at Bentwaters.
2: I didn't see it, but oh, okay. three three military eyewitnesses did. And I can't tell you how upsetting that was to me. They were talking about um, a weather modification device, which actually works, and there are a handful of people using them responsibly uh, around the world to help fight droughts. Uh, the most significant one um, is Dr. James DeMeo right. works out of his laboratory just outside of Ashland, Oregon, and has worked around the world to fight droughts with Reich weather modification technology. <clears throat> in, the, in the brief time that we have left, there's no way I can do justice to this, but I will say um, I was first introduced to Reich's work when I was still a teenager, which I am eternally thankful for. Um, when I was in my later 20s, i seeked out the uh, psychiatrist who had been his first assistant, Dr. Ellsworth F. Baker.
3: Right.
2: And I went into therapy with Dr. Baker and was with him for six or seven years, appreciated tremendously the benefits of what I got out of working with Dr. Baker. And in that period of time, was fortunate enough to meet spend time with and ultimately interview or work many of the people who had worked with or trained with Reich or been in therapy with him or worked in some adjunctive position as a laboratory assistant. uh, I spent time with his late daughter, Dr. Eva Reich, who passed away uh, I think early this year or late last year, uh, well into her eighties as a physician in rural Maine. Mm -hmm. Um, it's probably the most distorted and misunderstood body of absolutely important scientific knowledge that's out there and this year I'll be doing free talk and one of them in the States that for anybody uh, who can come I think it would be a brilliant introduction to Dr. Reich's work in the best atmosphere possible because it's being sponsored by um, the Orgone Biophysical Research Laboratory in Ashland, Oregon. Um, the conference is called New Research in Orgonomy, uh, and orgonomy is the word that Reich gave to his science, which is the study of how energy functions in the living and non-living realms. Uh, my talk is called Wilhelm Reich and UFOs, a review, reappraisal, and update. And before anything else, let me just give, uh, you, your, your listeners a URL. This will be the first weekend in August, August 1st and 2nd. And if you are in the Northwest or can get there, this is a gorgeous area, but much more important, the contributors and the knowledge that will be shared there is phenomenal. The website is www. dot org. Orgonomy spelled O-R-G-O-N-O-M-Y. ergonomyconference.org. org. Now, following month in September, I'll be giving two talks on Reich and a workshop on Orgonomy, but that will be in Liverpool, England. Uh, that first talk will be called The Life and Work of Wilhelm Reich. The second talk, The Untold Story of Wilhelm Reich, Cloud Busting, and UFOs. Uh, for any possible, uh, listeners who can get there, or I don't know if they're recording it, if they do, uh, to try to get a DVD, their website is beyond-knowledge.co.uk. That's beyond knowledge with a dash between the words dot co dot uk um, w- i'm not even sure where to begin in the in the few minutes that are left except to say that in all my years and all of the killings upon me, all of the books that I've read, the things that I've studied, the almost thirty countries I've traveled in, the remarkable people have entered my life, uh, the work of Dr. Reich, and the benefit I have gotten from it, and the information it has given me to understand the world around me much better, is second to none. Um, I think there are something like 17 books that he wrote that are out there in English, absolutely none of them in print. But if you go to a good book search website like Abe Books, A-B-E, like Abe Lincoln, abebooks.com, and type in Wilhelm Reich, you can find inexpensive paperbacks or very expensive first editions <laughs> and begin to build that part of your library uh, from a physical, scientific, social, political perspective of the world. There is no one that comes close to uh, having given us so much knowledge about life, energy, and human functioning than Dr. Reich. Absolutely no one.
1: So were you interested in Reich before you found... Oh, obviously you were. Before you found this out about Bentwaters and what what were they possibly doing with those things?
2: I was interested in uh, Reich's work 10 years before... um, Um, I uh, became involved with UFOs. I I read Reich's work first when I started, when I was 19. But to cut to your question, um, Reich was um, born in the the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1897 and emigrated to America in, I think, 1941 to accept a teaching position at the New School for Social Research in New York. And like many um, citizens who are naturalized, they love this country with a ferocity that many of us don't get. We love it in our own way, but to have America take you in, especially at the time that it took in Reich, um, he loved this country. And as developed his scientific work, in many cases we have carefully, carefully kept records of keeping various agencies or offices within the United States government or military informed. And he sent schematics at one point for this device that could combat drought and break uh, desert cycles and make it green where it wasn't if it was properly applied. But, again... This is impossible to do in the time that we have here. The simple but very powerful principle that cloudbusters operate under was only researched to a modest point in terms of the size of the apparatus. And apparently, working in the original schematics, the Air Force, or someone else uh, working contractually for the Air Force, created cloudbusters that were huge on bed trucks and the only reason it enters in brendleton farmer's story is five months before we got to suffolk coming out with a quote-unquote storm of historic proportions completely unpredicted swept in and in Three hours brought down, in just one area, in Suffolk, a million and a quarter trees, including trees that I saw that were 500-year-old holly trees that had to be a meter across. They were snapped like toothpicks. Now, we were told that it was 110-mile winds and it was a ferocious hurricane. I grew up in a hurricane zone. They're driven, Rain is a component. Not one dra- drop of rain ever fell, and it was something I was not going to include in the book. Larry had observed one and would not back down about it. I mean, he identified it in pictures that I had, et cetera, and so forth. But two years later, I found two other military witnesses who had been stationed at Rendlesham Forest in Bentwaters and at the sister base, RAF Woodbridge, who also observed. And there was no question in their mind that it was not anything else but what I showed them pictures of. It was not a, uh, um, you know, some kind of anti-aircraft gun or something. So uh, I can only say um, to folks that are curious about this, please read Left at Gate, or learn more about Dr. Reich or, at the least, um, visit Dr. DeMeo's extraordinary website, Begin to educate yourself about the weather modification science and rights other work by um, going to that URL that I gave you, um, or just um, uh, googling Dr. James DeMeo, be capital M E O, or Orgone Biophysical Research Laboratory, or O B R L. Any of those should get you to website in uh, several tries and uh, I just can't say enough about Jim's work uh, or about the work that it's based in, Dr. Wilhelm Reich's. And the only other thing to add there, as you know, was that um, Reich observed UFOs toward the end of his career in the most well, in the most confounding way possible. They were drawn to the areas that he was doing weather modification work. And of course, publishing around this made him sound like an absolute lunatic, and it really was something that hurt his scientific reputation tremendously. And even colleagues witnessed these things with him, encouraged him not to write about it because of the way that he would be perceived. Once again, the ridicule factor will destroy you. Was historically on many occasions, no matter what your accomplishments in other areas.
1: That's true. Um, it's funny, even when I uh, wrote to the Reich Museum in, when was it? Probably Wait. 90, huh?
2: In Rangeley, Maine.
1: Yes. I wrote to them in 94, 95 because they were selling copies of Contact with Space, which was <laughs> his. yeah. Which was his book, basically, about this entire episode that you've been talking about. That's and, right, the
2: last he wrote.
1: Yeah, and it somehow escaped. Yeah, Go ahead. You know what, Peter? You keep cutting out. Is it, is your phone uh, have a low signal on it?
2: I I have no idea. Poppy?
1: Yeah, it's now it's cutting out even worse. Oh. Um, there did, you are. Did you copy of the book? Yes, I got a copy of it. The funny thing was that I noticed about the Oregon Institute, it was even they didn't really want to talk about it or have anybody talk to me about it, but they were perfectly willing to sell the book, which somehow escaped the uh, book burning uh, sponsored by the FDA, which is another thing people should know about uh, Wilhelm Wright. We can run over time. Yeah. It's fine It's uh, uh, to get to what we need to get to, as long as, long as it's okay with you.
2: Oh, sure. Um... No, I um, I envy you because I have a photocopy of the book. For many many years, they sold out the last copies they had at one hundred and fifty dollars each.
1: Yeah, that's what and I bought it the
2: book for. Now, you know, is I'm sure it's worth over a thousand dollars if you can find it. But you know, there were only five hundred copies printed.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, I and have enough- one. <laughs> I have so, one, and it's um, fascinated me for years.
2: I'm extremely jealous. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> the only uh, but yes, you're right. Go ahead. Um, I'm the first paper that I wrote on Reich and UFOs discussed in great detail. The embarrassment that many of his colleagues who had tremendous admiration for him felt, because already in the 1950s, this ridicule factor.